Welcome to the Blue Security Podcast, a weekly podcast for information security defenders, where we bring you discussions on best practices, tools, and implementation for enterprise security. Now, here are your hosts for today's show, Andy Ja and Adam Brewer. Welcome to this week's episode of the Blue Security Podcast. I'm Andy, your host. I'm Adam, your co-host. We have so much to talk about and so little time. I have a ton of content lined up. And so we'll just get to it. One of the things I wanted to follow up on is last week we talked about MDE device control, Defender for Endpoint from Microsoft. And one of the most important things that I wanted to note is I did find out for certain that MDE device control will work if MDE is in passive mode. And that's really good news for those who want to possibly use it alongside another EDR solution or AV solution. So you can put these devices in passive mode and still onboard them onto MDE and use it alongside another AV solution. Moving on to some breaches. 23andMe, this happened back in October 10th. And I wanted to talk about it because number one, I have always been a little bit skeptical Mm -hmm. of some of the send your DNA into this database and look at it. Now, I don't think that there's anything wrong with the actual concept. I just get a little bit skeptical of sending my DNA into a database that I'm not sure what the security is. And unfortunately, they were somewhat breached in a manner. So 23andMe sent an email to all their users resetting their user passwords after some cyber criminals. And unfortunately, the article that I looked at, they're still calling these folks hackers, which I think is just terrible in this day and age. But the cyber criminals obtained some user data and then posted it online. They were offering around $1 to $10 for individual profiles. And the attack vector for this was credential stuffing. Using usernames and passwords from other breaches and then stuffing them into 23andMe. And unfortunately, the majority of normal users still reuse their emails and passwords across a lot of sites and apps. And once the attackers were in, they compiled users that had opted into this optional feature called DNA relatives feature, which allows the users to switch it on and automatically share their data to others to enumerate genetic data of similar groups. So like if you were, say, Asian or Jewish or something, of that descent, then that data would then be shared across that similar ethnic group. So 23andMe itself wasn't breached, but rather some of the users that had reused passwords were breached. And then because of this feature, they were enabled to enumerate some data from similar groups and then exfiltrate that and post it online. What can orgs do to really proactively prevent some sort of similar attack? Number one, there's a tool called Have I Been Pwned? And that's a website. It has an API. You can search via domain, like your org company's domain, and see if any emails within that domain have been compromised, you do have to verify your email if you're going to do this for obvious reasons. And then it does have an integration to prevent password reuse on like, say your website. So highly recommend you do that if you have an external facing website that requires username and passwords. Of course, MFA, if you have just username and password, then if those are compromised, pretty obvious. So make sure that you have MFA turned on. And then if you are a Microsoft customer, at least with Entra P1, then you can turn on on password protection. And we've talked about this feature several times in various shows of ours, but it's a feature that you can turn on and it has a telemetry from the dark web that Microsoft uses to compare any type of compromised passwords. You can also have a custom list of passwords that might be for your company, like your geographic location, your company name, stuff like that, that you can prevent users from putting into their passwords.
passwords that would be easily guessed for your company. And then it has an integration with on-prem Active Directory as well. So we'll put some notes in the show notes for you to take a look and see if you want to deploy that. But that's a great feature to help you protect against passwords. I saw this come across and I didn't realize that there was no technical compromise. It's mostly user accounts being compromised and then kind of sort of lateral movement in the sense that you have those genetic relatives that you can see as well. So in the reporting, I'd say it fell down from that metric, at least from a headlines perspective, because I thought this was actually like a failure of their security instead of individual user security. Now you could argue today, and I think with a straight face, that especially for something this sensitive, maybe you just, if you're 23andMe or its competitors, maybe y'all should just require MFA as just a condition of doing business with users. Because the data we're working with is so sensitive, we require you to stand up multi-factor authentication to work with us. Now, I think they don't want to do that because I think if they dig in too much on the fact that you should be wary of sending this information, you should be conscientious of it. I think that hurts their business model. So I don't think they want you to think about it that much. They don't want you to be that concerned about it. And maybe that's the wrong mindset as well, because you have that pull push of their business requires people to willingly give up their genetic information, which is static and not easily changeable, if changeable at all. And they may not want to draw attention to that. So this is interesting. I love the call outs here around not only preventing credential reuse, which then prevents credential stuffing, but also I was thinking of this before you even got to it, Andy, easily guessed passwords as well, because password spray is certainly a cousin of credential stuffing, where credential stuffing, I have a pretty good idea of what your password is. Password spray, I have a pretty good idea of how to guess what your password is. And certainly through basic password hygiene, you can prevent this, but let's be honest, most people do reuse passwords and create easily guessable passwords because there are so many sites and orgs out there still doing things like requiring password complexity and prioritizing that over password length. So the battle against passwords continues. Passwordless is ultimately the destination we want to get to. Using password managers helps, but then again, speaking of password managers, what's going on with uh, Okta and folks like 1Password? Yeah, this was also concerning another breach involving Okta. So this happened more recently on October 20th, Friday, Okta revealed that they suffered an intrusion in its customer support system. Around 1% of Okta's customers were impacted, which is about 184 of their 18,400 some customers, including 1Password, Beyond Trust, and Cloudflare. Those are some of the notable security companies that were using Okta. Okta didn't actually discover the breach themselves. It was independently detected by Beyond Trust and Cloudflare. Beyond Trust detected an identity-centric attack on October 2nd, which led them to believe that Okta's support system was compromised. They alerted Okta, but it took until October 19th for Okta to confirm the breach. Cloudflare discovered attacks tracing back to October 18th, and they were able to contain the attack, so no customer information or systems on Cloudflare's side was impacted, and Cloudflare contacted Okta about the breach before Okta notified them. And I think 
What's most concerning is some of this breach shares attack vectors and vulnerabilities from the security incident in 2022, where attackers compromised a contractor or subprocess of Okta, where Okta had trusted a third party to do some support work. In this case, it wasn't a third party support service that was compromised. It was their internal customer service support where attackers used the stolen login credentials to compromise a support account, then leverage that access to steal cookies and session tokens used to give customer support providers access to their customer systems for troubleshooting. And with these access tokens, attackers could then compromise Okta customer accounts directly, including super admin accounts or organization accounts within customer tenants. One password, interestingly enough, released their own security incident report on what they saw and how they responded. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes. I read through this because I'm a one password customer. As am I. And so is Adam. And I wanted to know exactly what they did. And I was a little bit off put by their response because number one, in their response, they talked about how, you know, one of the actions as part of this was the support staff started using a YubiKey or hardware security token to access their account. They didn't have that prior to this incident. So it was an action that they did afterwards. And then the support staff of 1Password's endpoint was scanned with a free version of Malwarebytes to ensure, quote unquote, that the endpoint wasn't compromised. If it was me and Adam, I know you agree with me on this. You just flatten that computer and reinstall the operating system. There's no reason to scan it, let alone scan it with a free version of Malwarebytes on a Mac OS. Like just pay for a true EDR AV agent. And then, you know, if it gets compromised, just flatten it, reset it, start from scratch. That way, you know, but going back to Okta, you know, some of the things I wish I knew were what security measures were changed after the 2022 incident, like were hardware security keys rolled out because if they were, then this internal account probably wouldn't have been able to be compromised if they had credentials. It would have been very difficult to compromise an internal support account if that account had a hardware security key required for it. So in general, I think one of the takeaways is privileged accounts. In this day and age, if you don't have a plan yet, you should start having at least a plan and a project to roll out hardware security keys for your privileged administrator accounts in your organization. Like example for like Microsoft would be global admin, exchange admin, SharePoint admin, you know, all the major administrative accounts, Teams admin, cloud endpoint admin, you know, basically anyone that can get local admin on a device, anyone that has subscription access, all of those should have have hardware security keys associated with them at this point. And if not, you should have a project ready to do that. Andy and I both work for Microsoft. However, we work in our field sales organization, so we're not directly part of any product group. Okta is a competitor of Microsoft, to be fair. We compete against them with Entra ID. And so when we're talking about this, we're talking about it in that academic sense of cybersecurity and reviewing it. I think it is fair to say no organization is going to be free from security incidents. That is a standard you should not maybe aspire to 
to, but realistically will never achieve. And so then the questions become not just the protect side of cybersecurity, but detect and respond. How do you handle detection and response? Those are things I'm going to measure you against because expecting 100% protection is not realistic. And so when we talk about any organization's response, there's time to response, there's clarity of response, there is prevention of that similar incident in the future. And it sounds like here, without having more information, there's maybe more work to be done in the sense that there seems to be some similar themes here from before in terms of the lack of ability to be detected internally, the lack of clarity and public communications on the issue, so on and so forth. And those are things all of us as cybersecurity organizations and professionals should aspire to do better moving forward, right? Detecting faster, being more open with what we see, sharing what we discover with others. I always look back on the solar winds compromise and a lot of companies involved with that did a really great job of being very forthright with what they saw. And again, I'm seeing less of that here. So I think that's a goal to aspire to, to get better in that space. The one password portion of it with their report and some of their handling of it is interesting, but I think what that really points to is a challenge in scaling up from startup to more enterprise-grade security. And I will say, one of the things that keeps me up at night is that small and medium commercial space, small and medium business. I think they are struggling with cybersecurity more than anyone else, and even tech companies are not immune from this because one password, although it has grown significantly from when it started, I remember when it was still a very small set of developers, maybe one, two, three, and they only wrote for Apple platforms. And it has grown and they have an enterprise offering today. And we very much appreciate their software and think it's great. And by the way, no risk to your password vaults as a result of any of this, but still see those growing pains in building that enterprise class cybersecurity practice. And I think there's opportunity there for sure for a lot of startups and companies. And I hear advertisements for things like Collide to be used with Okta or some of other competitors in that space where they're trying to start to build some of the maturity that enterprise class solutions already have, but they're trying to stitch it together through this combination of like Jamf and Mac OS and Okta and basically the anybody about Microsoft strategy growing from startup on up. And that's hard. So I acknowledge that as well. Ultimately, my biggest concern from all of this is number one, it sounds like potentially Okta support has standing access to customer systems, or if not standing access, very easily obtained access. That should be much more difficult to get. Getting access to a customer system should absolutely positively be the last resort. And so I'm really uncomfortable with that because again, the potential for attack surface and lateral movement is enormous. Do not like that. The other thing here that really caught my eye again, and Andy, you asked the question, and I'll ask it too, is Octosport requiring fish-resistant methodologies like hardware security tokens? Because I agree with you. At this point, dear listener, dear viewer, if you're on our YouTube channel, your privileged accounts should require or at least be using hardware security keys full-time. There's no excuse at this point. The cost is not burdensome for any organization compared to the risk. It is the easiest, 
best, highest ROI decision you could possibly make. All of your admins, all of your technical people, all of your privileged accounts should be using hardware security keys full time. And I would love to see that be the standard as fast as possible. And I think all these ongoing cybersecurity incidents only prove the need to get there yesterday. So I do think that's almost a drop everything you're doing. If you're not already doing it, start yesterday and get those in place. It's highly highly important. So disappointing, life will go on, but let's learn lessons. Let's be better moving forward as a result of this. And I really hope Octus takes that responsibility very seriously because identity, and I know it's like a dead horse at this point, but identity is that security control plane, maybe the most critical security control plane, because if you own identity, nothing else really matters. Like building security controls when someone has super user privilege is crazy. So you got to start there and you have to have identity be buttoned up. Yeah, to add a little bit of context to the access that support for Okta has, the way that they were actually compromised once they had access to the support system was they had access to customer HTTP archive or HAR files. And so when a customer needs support, from Okta. Okta support will ask the customer to upload an HTTP archive or a HAR file to them so that they can look at what's going on. Part of that HAR file can contain a session token. Mm-hmm. Okta recommends to sanitize your HAR files before sending it to them and remove these section tokens, but many customers do not. And so that's part of the issue here is number one, is it the burden of the customer to have to sanitize their HAR file before uploading it? Or should there be a process of on Okta's side to remove the session tokens from the HAR files before storing them as part of say a customer ticket system? Mm -hmm. And so that's really what happened is these session tokens were part of the HAR files that were archived within the support system. Once the actor, the attacker had access to the support system, they were able to see these HAR files, have the session tokens, and some of them were still active. And so they were able to access them. Upon getting notified of the breach itself, Okta did revoke all embedded session tokens. So that was done as part of the remediation. But the problem was they had them. And I think there's some improvement that needs to be done on Okta's side because I almost think it's a little bit unreasonable to ask the customer to look through a HAR file because many of them are not. I'm thinking back to like my days as an Okta admin. Mm-hmm. Like I wouldn't be able to look through a HAR file and find a session token and remove it. Yeah, I have no clue how to do that. Exactly. So I think it is on Okta's side that they really should sanitize these HAR files before archiving them in their system. Yeah, absolutely. I would 100% say they should sanitize those. The other point I've made on occasion with things like SSL decryption and performing that in your environment is its attractive attack surface. If you're taking every single packet and you're breaking it apart and you're inspecting it, doing that SSL inspection, that's a highly attractive target to be an attacker, sit in there and watch stuff flowing through and be able to take advantage of it. Also, if you're dropping trusted certificates on all your user devices so that you can break that decryption, that's also something attackers can do when they're inside your network. So 
you have basically given them the ability to inspect everything. And so in Octa's case, if their support troubleshooting process routinely involves customers sending them valid session tokens, that's something they should take really seriously to not collect those, maybe find another way to do it whenever possible. And if they do, absolutely sanitizing it as a very first thing as part of the input checking. I remember recently with our parent company, with Microsoft, with the key signing issue we had a couple of months ago, one of the things that happened there is there were memory dumps that had been pulled out of the production environment for analysis for debugging, which was a standard process. And what was supposed to happen is when those dumps were created, they were supposed to be sanitized. When they were moved out of the production environment, there was supposed to be another sanitization check. And then there's like a third one. And there were cascading failures, which tends to be required to have a cybersecurity incident. But as part of the remediation process from Microsoft, and again, this is a different thing, but related in the, in the sense that it's similar technology. We talked about how we had put multiple steps in to keep checking for that. And if it was detected at any point, it should be removed. And so I think similar technology should be in place here moving forward. So I appreciate the additional context. I didn't know our viewers and listeners may not have been as well. So that helps us understand better how that happened. And that at least is an improvement. And then there's opportunity to improve further. So I'm glad it sounds like they did do a complete scan of all of them and then revoked all of those tokens, which absolutely is a very good first step. So thumbs up to Okta for doing that. Yep. And they don't have standing access, Yeah, which was one of the things that you said. I wanted to make sure that our yes. listeners knew that that's not something that Okta does in their practice either. Okay, good, good. Yeah, that sounds a lot better. It was just when you gave the summary, it sounded like it, and now we understand better. So Our final topic is a new feature in Defender for Endpoint that I wanted to highlight, especially for Microsoft customers who might be using Defender for Endpoint or be licensed for it, even if you're not using it. So this was first announced at Ignite in November 2022, and now it is generally available. And it is something called automatic attack disruption. And it's really revolutionary when it comes to the EDR, XDR space. But MDE is now able to automatically disrupt human operated attacks like ransomware a lot earlier in the kill chain before it reaches the impact portion of that kill chain without needing to deploy any other capabilities. And it uses signals across the M365 Defender workloads like identity, endpoints, email, even software as a service apps as part of the Defender for Cloud apps to disrupt those attacks. If any type of human operated attack is detected, this automatic attack disruption will simultaneously stop the campaign on that device and inoculate any other device in the organization as part of that disruption. This is a little bit different than if you're familiar with automatic investigation and remediation, which has also been part of MDE for a while. That was probably three, four years ago, at least three, four years ago in like yep. I think 2020. And that portion of MDE is analyzing the different alerts, collecting different evidence, and then applying appropriate remediation to that particular alert, like stopping a process or quarantining or removing like a malicious file, and then resolving the alert for you. That's a little bit different because at that point, it has already impacted your organization. It's just doing the remediation as part of that. 
This is the disruption which happens much sooner than when the automatic remediation would happen. And so number one, it's on by default. So there's nothing that you need to toggle on. Number two, it contains compromised users across the devices before they have a chance to attack. And it can identify the compromised users and if it has any associated activity with other endpoints and then cut off inbound and outbound communication to that device. Even if a user has the highest permission level and would normally be outside of like a security controls purview, the attacker would still be restricted from accessing any other device in the organization. There's four main capabilities as part of this new attack disruption. Number one, lateral movement. If a user is compromised, normally today admins can go into Active Directory and disable the user or automatic attack disruption can also do that as part of like MDI if it has a service account associated with it. But disabling a user is not usually the end of it because there are sometimes existing Kerberos tickets that still exist, very similar to like a session. And so in order to disrupt this, there's a new policy that's distributed to MDE agents so that the MDE agent can analyze and deny any logins without interaction or dependency on Active Directory itself, which is really cool in my opinion that you can have a device with a policy that gets it from the cloud saying this user is compromised even if it's a on-prem user and be able to deny that login without the dependency or line of sight to active directory there's also pre-ransomware incrimination and so like today there's a ton of value in mde and other similar xdr solutions that can bring value by detecting and stopping an attack at the impact stage like we talked about but now mde can identify the attacker who has hands-on keyboard in your org and then it also can identify all compromised entities the attacker has access to before the impact stage and isolate those entities to limit the impact scope and any other attack paths that that attacker would take. As part of that is the eviction capability. So MDE is now able to identify all attackers active and available sessions. It could be RDP to a desktop or if they have access to a SQL server or if they're on exchange or even on your domain controller. And based on that compromised identity, MDE can terminate all those sessions and available sessions at the same time. And it's not just like say RDP, it could be like SMB if they have access to a file share or something like that. All known, active and available available sessions would get cut off from the attacker. And then finally pivoting. In most attacks, there's usually more than one entity involved, whether it be an endpoint or identity. And MDE can detect the main entity where most malicious activity is coming from. And then any other entity as part of that attack that the attacker might have possession to or could be in possession of and enforce all the capabilities that we just talked about and be able to contain those entities from impacting your organization. So most of these in fact, all of these are very user centric, but all the actual enforcement is done on the endpoint. As part of it, the UI, the incidents and alerts will show any type of automatic disrupted attack and there will be logs available for advanced hunting. You'll be able to see everything from what the tool saw to do the automatic attack disruption, as well as all the actions that they took to prevent things from happening. And most importantly, I think this is huge, is MDE can be in passive mode. That means if you're an ME3 customer, well, this is an E5 capability, so you do have to be an ME5 customer. So even if you aren't using MDE as your primary EDR, you can still onboard them to MDE with MDE in passive mode and still be able to take advantage of this capability. So the licensing does require MDE P2, ME5 security, or E5. 
Wow. <laughs> I had heard about this, seen it flown around for a while, and I've been through this before, but having you walk through it for our listeners and viewers, and really, I think the kicker here is that it can be used even when MDE is in passive mode. That is a big deal because there are many customers out there who own Microsoft 365 E5 or some of the components of it. And especially for those customers who have the full E5 suite, many of them have deployed a lot of that suite, but they've chosen a couple of solutions where they're going to stay with their incumbent solution. So for example, maybe they're staying with Proofpoint instead of Defender for Office 365, or sometimes they say, I'm going to stay with Palo Alto Cortex instead of Defender for Endpoint or a CrowdStrike or whatever. It happens. Nobody runs a 100% homogenous Microsoft environment, not even Microsoft. And there's been value. Let me back up a step. There has been value in running Defender for Endpoint in passive mode, even if your primary endpoint protection platform is another solution. There's been value there for a while. It never hurts having a second set of eyes, especially because Defender for Endpoint on Windows is baked into the operating system. So the impacts are very low from a resources perspective. So there's always been value in turning it on as that second set of eyes. Now, more than ever, with this automatic attack disruption, truly game-changing, where you don't even have to give up your primary platform if you're not ready to change. But if you want to add significant additional protection, and there are a lot of orgs out there that own this technology and aren't taking advantage of it, this is really a good reason to give that a second look. And then maybe over time, you may want to use this as your primary platform, but even if you don't, really, really cool stuff. So if you own Defender for Endpoint Plan 2, whether that's Microsoft 365 E5 Security, the full suite of Microsoft 365 E5, or Defender for Endpoint Plan 2 by itself, definitely something you should look at. So thanks for walking through that, Andy. That's pretty interesting. And, and I like your point. You kind of summarized it at the end. Ultimately, the goal is containing the user, containing the identity, but we're using the endpoint to accomplish that basically because of some of the limitations with how identity works. Like you talked about with Kerberos tickets maybe still being active or with, for example, session tokens still being active in a more web-based context. This can work faster and work around the limitations of the identity platform to really help contain that user. That's really, really interesting. You're using Defender for Endpoint and the cloud is almost the second communications network to say, hey, don't trust this user anymore. Even if they try to sign into your endpoint, even if Active Directory thinks their creds are good, or even if you have cached creds that are good for this user, don't let them on anyway, because there's sketchy stuff afoot. That is really, really interesting of a way to solve ultimately what's an identity problem with a non-identity solution. I like out-of-the-box clever thinking like that. That's really, really novel and obviously really helpful because if you can contain that threat, you can limit the blast radius of any damage they can do. And I just got done talking about earlier how for so long we've put all our eggs in the protect part of the bag. We're going to protect. We're going to prevent everything. And we have to pivot beyond that mindset to detection and response. And how do we get good at those two things as well? Well, this helps us get really good at response because if we can't prevent the attacker from getting in in the first place, if we can very much limit how much damage they can do and how many systems they can gain access to, that's still a win. And ultimately, that's where we have to start to pivot our attention to because we are never going to be 100% of protection 
Revolution, but we can get pretty darn good at this phase of it, where through our architectural design, how we make our systems work together, and how we respond when we do detect, we can really make it very, very difficult for the majority of attacks to go very far. So really awesome stuff. I have one final thing to add. Adam and I used to be aligned where he was my security specialist mm-hmm. and I was the technical specialist, but he left me. And so <laughs> I got a little peek behind the curtain because as he was transitioning and I was getting a new specialist, I started seeing a little bit more of the cost of some of these, which I never saw before. I didn't care about, but I had to now because Adam left me. <laughs> so I think it is worth talking to your account team. If you are an ME3 customer or you're thinking about Defender for Endpoint P2, if you're an enterprise customer, there are discounts. It's actually a very small uptick in cost if you're just looking at Defender for Endpoint P2, if you're already a Microsoft customer, especially if you have an enterprise agreement. I was actually kind of shocked at how cheap it was. And the discounts vary depending on where you are on the spectrum. So I'm not going to give you any quotes (laughs) over this but i think it's worth checking it out if you're at all interested again you don't have to go away from your incumbent solution if you're not using mde it can be in passive mode and you just have to have mde p2 so i think even if you're just curious reach out to your account team and just check it out that's a really good point and i can explain what happened there because this was a change so a few years ago microsoft rolled out a product called defender for endpoint plan one and re named the current, at the time, Defender for Endpoint Solution to be Plan 2. So what happened is Microsoft took all of the cloud management capabilities, the cloud-backed capabilities of the Defender for Endpoint system, kind of carved out the XDR stuff and some of the TVM stuff and put that all in P2, but took the base level ability to manage everything from the cloud, have this really beautiful, simple to use cloud UI and manage all your endpoints and do next generation antivirus protection, attack surface reduction, some of those sorts of things, and added that to Microsoft 365 E3, which the overwhelming majority of enterprises own today. So new value that did not exist in that platform before created a new product, added it to E3 at no additional cost. And so because now the majority of, well, if you're an E3 organization, you have that plan one today, what you pay for now to get to plan two is what we call a step up or just an incremental component to it. And to Andy's point, again, without giving anything away, it is going to be much less than the cost of acquiring any third-party XDR solution, EDR solution, because you already own most of it. You're just paying for those additional components. And it is extremely high value for what you pay. And so it's worth asking your Microsoft account team for a quote on Defender for Endpoint Plan 2. Because again, I can say with confidence, you cannot go talk to anyone, Palo Alto, CrowdStrike, whomever and come in at that same value. And that's mostly because you already own a lot of it today. So it's very cost effective to get to plan two. So if you want to take advantage of this, again, even if you're not looking to migrate off your existing solution, I think there's enough value here to make that justifiable for sure. So definitely thanks Andy for pointing that out. That's a good thing to go look at as well. Another angle to consider. Well, that was an action packed (laughs) information packed show. That's it for this week. Thanks for watching and listening. As always, I will have the notes in the show notes on everything that we talked about today, as well as our contact information. If you have any questions or topics you want us to talk about in the future. Thanks. We'll talk to you guys next week. 
Thank you for listening to the Blue Security Podcast. Please check out the show notes, catch up on episodes you may have missed, and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Find Andy on Twitter at AJAW0 and Adam at AJ Brewer. See you at our next episode.